Don did not attempt the first landing on a dwarf planet. Mark Raymond will tell us why, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. I only meant to pass along a simple question from a listener, but conversations with Mark Raymond are just too good to abbreviate. That's why we'll spend a few extra minutes talking with JPL's new Chief Engineer for Mission Operations and Science. More than 27 months sailing on sunlight, and our LightSail 2 is still up there. We'll get a mission update from LightSail Program Manager Bruce Betts just before he treats us to a great night sky and much more, including a special extended deadline for the new Space Trivia Contest. Have you seen the newest close-ups of Mercury? The European Space Agency's Bepi Colombo snapped them on October 1st as it zipped past the planet in a slingshot maneuver. You can read about the mission in this week's edition of The Downlink, the Planetary Society's weekly newsletter. The spacecraft will finally enter orbit around that hot and cold world in 2025. Stand down, Mars fleet. It's solar conjunction time when Earth is blocked from the red planet by the sun. Don't expect much work to get done till Mars comes out the other side around the 16th. NASA has successfully put the latest Landsat in orbit. Landsat 9 continues a 50-year tradition of Earth observation by this series. Let's see, what else is happening? Oh yeah, Captain Kirk is going into space. The real Captain Kirk, you know. The original model? William Shatner will be on board next week when another Blue Origin New Shepard takes flight. Warp factor, oh, let's say point oh 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 one. New editions of the Downlink every Friday at planetary.org slash downlink. What does the Chief Engineer for Mission Operations and Science do? I think you'll enjoy Mark Raymond's answer to that question, but first, you'll hear him answer a question that came from someone else. Mark has been dropping by Planetary Radio for a long time, beginning at about the time he became Chief Engineer and Mission Director for Dawn, the spacecraft that orbited and revealed both Vesta and Ceres in the main asteroid belt. Mark arrived at JPL in 1986 after working as a postdoctoral researcher with John Hall, co-winner of the 2005 Nobel Prize for Physics. Mark used much of what was learned from the Deep Space One mission to make Dawn the enormous success it became, including reliance on ion engine propulsion. He is the only person to have received both JPL's Exceptional Technical Excellence Award and its Exceptional Leadership Award. Mark Raymond, welcome back to Planetary Radio. I realized just last week we had to have you on. This began when New York listener Setapong wondered why you left Dawn on orbit instead of attempting to land on Ceres. And I assumed that Setapong was probably thinking of, you know, what Rosetta did at Comet 67P, or better yet, look back 20 years to near Shoemaker's little bump down onto uh, asteroid Eros. I, I wasn't surprised to hear from you soon after we talked about this on the show but I thought that Setapong and other listeners might like to hear the answer directly from the mission director and chief engineer. So again, welcome. 
Thank you, Matt. It's always fun to be here. As you know, I'm a regular listener to your show, uh, you. and I always enjoy it. Your shows are informative and fun, so it's it's always a treat to be here and to um, discuss Setapong's insightful question of why didn't we do this clever thing? I want to know, in fact, you've already told me, but we have to share this with everybody, but there's something else that's really eerily serendipitous about this. Tell me this the anniversary that you just mentioned before we started recording. Uh, you and I are having this discussion on September 27th, which truly by coincidence is the 14th anniversary of the launch of Dawn. So <laughs> it embarked on its mission from Cape Canaveral on this date in 2007. So that's a nice connection. I'll say, is this perfect or what? Setapong, thank, uh, thank you for uh, setting this in motion. And I assume you were there at the Cape. No, actually, I was not. I haven't oh. been there for the launches of my missions because I'm in mission control at JPL. As soon as the spacecraft separates from the launch vehicle, JPL takes over, and that's where I need to be at launch. All right. Doing your job. That's okay. I don't get to see the cool launch uh, live, but I get to do other cool things, so that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> you think? Yeah. Okay. So why didn't you just sidle up to series the way we saw near Shoemaker do in an unplanned rendezvous with that that asteroid 20 years ago? Well, the first thing I could say is, why didn't anybody think of this when Dawn was at series? I mean, set upon, why didn't you send this suggestion to us? Maybe we never thought of it. But in <laughs> fact, of course we did. There are two parts to the answer, but part of it is contained in your description of series. Yes, in some sense, it's an asteroid, but it's a dwarf planet. That's an important distinction. I think when people think of asteroids, they think of these small bodies like Eros, Ryugu, Itakawa, Bennu, Cheryamov-Gerasimenko. I'm not saying that size is a measure of importance or interest, but still, it's an important physical parameter. Uh, Ceres is not at all like those. You know, there are millions, literally millions of objects in the main asteroid belt. 35% of the total mass is in dwarf planet Ceres. I love that statistic. That's just fantastic. Random space fact, as Bruce would say. That's right. But this one wasn't random. It was, uh, well, what would you call it? A CCSF, carefully chosen space fact, maybe. <laughs> um, like okay. Ceres is subject to planetary protection, which is a set of standards that NASA subscribes to designed to ensure the integrity of extraterrestrial bodies, including this alien world Ceres. We were not allowed to let Dawn come in contact with Ceres because this exotic alien world was once covered with an ocean of liquid water. And we know from Dawn's exploration that it still harbors a vast inventory of water. Most of it is ice, but there's some liquid still underground. It has a supply of heat. Dawn discovered organic materials and a a rich inventory of other chemicals with all these ingredients, uh, Ceres could have undergone some of the chemistry related to the development of life 
and we don't want to contaminate that pristine environment. Okay, that's one good reason. What's the other one? Well, the other one is Dawn was not physically capable of accomplishing a controlled landing. Once again, Ceres is not just one of these chunks of rock. It's a big place, and its gravity is significant. Now, when missions like the ones you and I have mentioned, which I should say are incredibly cool missions, you know, you and I and essentially everybody listening, we're all enthusiastic space buffs. These other missions, which are super neat, which accomplish their landings or their their contact with these bodies, did so because the gravity, the gravitational attraction was exceedingly low. It's much more like, that is for those missions, it's much more like when two spacecraft rendezvous in orbit. Yeah. You think of a spacecraft flying up to the space station, the gravitational attraction is almost entirely negligible. Not quite, but very close. So you just fly up next to the body and go from there. A series gravity was much too great for that. For reference, if Dawn had gone to, gone to a very low altitude orbit, even lower than we did, its orbital velocity would have been 800 miles per hour. Well, you can't just gently drop out of orbit like that. And even if we could have, you need a rocket engine to slow your descent, right? To make a controlled landing. Well, Dawn had its famously efficient ion propulsion system, uniquely efficient, actually, without which this mission would have been not just difficult, but truly impossible, would have been impossible with any other propulsion system. But as I think another one of your listeners uh, wrote in, the thrust from the ion engine is comparable to what you would feel if you hold a single sheet of paper in your hand. One way to think of this is, imagine you had a balance, a scale, where on one side you have the piece of paper. On the other side, you have Dawn's weight in the series gravitational field. That weight would have been about the equivalent of about 50 pounds on Earth. Well, the weight of a single sheet of paper is not going to be very effective against a 50-pound weight. Yeah. On Earth, of course, Dawn would have made weighed much more, but it wasn't at Earth, so that doesn't matter. It would have been 50 pounds in series gravitational field. So the ion propulsion system, which propelled Dawn from Earth past Mars into orbit around Vesta, allowed us to maneuver in orbit extensively at Vesta, break out of orbit, fly for another two and a half years to get to dwarf planet Ceres, go into orbit around Ceres, fly to 10 different orbits at Ceres, that ion propulsion system would have been totally ineffective in controlling the spacecraft's descent to that intriguing alien surface. And all of this, of course, goes along with the enormous success of this little spacecraft. I, is, don't you like to call it the, uh, the first true interplanetary uh, craft? Because it is still the only one to ever orbit two different bodies. Right. It's just as a detail, it's the only spacecraft ever to orbit two extraterrestrial destinations. Gotcha. So once again, for all of us who are space enthusiasts, spacecraft have orbited 
two solar system bodies many times, orbit the Earth and then the Sun, or the Earth and then the Moon. Even Mariner 9, and then many others after it, orbited the Sun and then Mars. But the Sun, while it's an extraterrestrial body, wasn't an extraterrestrial destination. Dawn is the only one that had the capability to go to a distant body, go into orbit around it, maneuver extensively, break out of orbit, and then go to another body and do that. It's also an interesting way, again, to think about how very massive Ceres is, even compared to number two, to Vesta. Because you said Ceres on its own was 35%, and, right. and Vesta only adds another 10% of all the mass of all that those rocks out there. Rocks right, and, and everything ice. else is smaller and you know lower mass. But you're right. I mean, we've discussed this before. When Ceres was discovered, and subsequently Vesta in 1801 and then 1807, they, along with two other bodies in the main asteroid belt, were described as planets. Yeah. And there were only four of them known until the middle of the 19th century. And then as science and technology advanced, more and more bodies started to be discovered in that part of the solar system. And uh, eventually they were no longer called planets. But, you know, you and I and most of the people who are listening grew up during a narrow window in human history when the planetary status of Vesta and Ceres had been forgotten, but Pluto still had planetary status. Now we're in a time where Pluto and Ceres and other bodies are collectively described as dwarf planets. And when the categorization or the category of dwarf planets was defined, Ceres was the first body to have been discovered that mm. fit that category because it was discovered 129 years before Pluto. As long as we're going this long, Mark, you have a different job now at JPL, the Jet Propulsion Lab, Chief Engineer for Mission Operations and Science, as, we, uh, as I said up front. What does the Chief Engineer for Mission Operations and Science uh, do? Mostly, I just get to keep having fun getting involved in missions that are in operations, missions that are preparing for operations, missions that are, of course, doing science. And JPL has so many exciting missions that it's, for me, just more of my life as a kid in a candy shop. Well, that's good. That I'm glad you're having fun, and that's a great overview. But I mean, I assume this is allowing you to use your experience, you've been at this a long time, to benefit people who are working on new missions that are constantly in development at JPL. Right. New missions and not so new missions. I've mm. spent a very enjoyable and significant amount of time recently working with the Voyager team. To me, the coolest thing is getting to work on the missions. But I've done that for a long time. And as you well know, I have very broad interests. You and I have discussed them right here in my, my space room at home together. And when I work on a project, I put all of my cognitive and emotional energy into that project. And that's great. It's wonderfully rewarding. And some of my, in fact, my most gratifying professional experiences have been on projects. I even talked about that in my TED talk. 
But at the same time, I feel like I miss out on the rest of the universe. And my biggest disappointment about my JPL career is that it interferes with my hobby of learning about and studying space exploration. I'm glad you mentioned that TED Talk again, because we talked about it last week. I mentioned it, and it didn't show up on the website, which I apologize for. But this time for sure, as Bullwinkle used to say, this time for sure. And I think it's called, if it's not impossible, it's not worth doing. Right. That, of course, I mean, let's be realistic. That's sort of a grabber. Um, (laughs) Yeah. But (laughs) maybe now that you've mentioned it, enough people will be grabbed that they'll listen to it and you can find it at tinyurl.com slash T-E-D-M-A-R-C or at the Planetary Radio webpage. Yeah, on this week's episode page at planetary.org slash radio. I'll just mention one more thing because you pointed out to me not too many days ago that that wonderful tour you provided some years ago of your home which is a, a, a bit of a uh, space memorabilia uh, museum and library as well, that that uh, video had somehow become private. It is available again. We'll put that link up as well so that people can uh, uh, see that amazing collection you have, which I'm guessing has grown since I was last there. It has, but let's be clear. You made the video and you made the video fun. I try only to talk to fun people because that makes it a lot easier for it to come off that way. So thanks, Mark, for being a fun person to talk to for a long time. Fun and informative. And uh, if if we get a nice uh, statement of gratitude from Setapong, I will pass that along as well. Good. Well, as always, it's a pleasure to talk with you and with your listeners. And I will listen to this show as I do all of them. That's Mark Raymond, solar system explorer, scientist, engineer. Uh, His title now at JPL, NASA JPL, is Chief Engineer for Mission Operations and Science. Bruce Betts and What's Up are next, beginning with his LightSail 2 update. This is Planetary Radio. LightSail 2 made history with its launch and deployment in 2019, and it's still sailing. Hi, everyone. It's Bruce, Program Manager for the Planetary Society's LightSail program. Your support made this happen. Now we need help to continue the adventure. Gifts in support of our extended mission will be matched up to $25,000 by a generous society member. Details are at planetary.org slash S-A-I-L-O-N. That's planetary.org slash sail on. There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Want more space? We've got the latest news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Here's the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. He is also the program manager for LightSail, LightSail 2, that is still orbiting above us right now. Welcome. How is that great bird doing? The great bird's doing very well in general. Uh, LightSail 2 still still orbiting, flying two and a third years into the mission, something like that. We have a 
things that go well and things that don't go as well. We had a power outage that shut down our ground systems and caused a little software hiccup. So we're still recovering from that, but we're getting data again from the spacecraft. Spacecraft is uh, fine and healthy and happy. I was just reading, because I'm going to be talking to uh, people in charge of the Lucy mission next week on next week's show. And they've put a plaque on the spacecraft because it's going to be orbiting for possibly tens of thousands of years. Maybe we should have done that with light sail. <laughs> it just seems to keep going. Well, we do have a a, a mini DVD on there. That's true. It has all the, mem- all the members' names and people who signed up and selfies from space and all sorts of good stuff. But yes, it, it is light sail too is the spacecraft that keeps going and keeps staying up. Now we're starting to see... Some degradation of the sail over time from the space environment, but uh, we actually, over the summer, had some of the had the best sailing we've had so far because of changes and modifications and things we we learned. We actually gained some altitude for a while and uh, a little bit, and uh, now we're back in the drag pulling us down. But we we keep fighting it with sailing and keep learning. Sail on, and tell us about the night sky. All right. Well, besides light sail, which usually is not very bright, <laughs> the evening sky is really cool, Matt. Have you been checking it out? Yeah, now and then. Been too uh, cloudy and rainy and even thundery down here the last few days, but it's been beautiful nevertheless. Yeah, we had weird thunderstorms last night, but that's not important. What is important <laughs> is when you don't have clouds. Venus, super bright over in the west after sunset. It's that really bright star-like object. And then over in the in the east, rotate yourself towards the east, and you'll see another really bright star-like object. That's Jupiter. And to Jupiter's right is yellowish Saturn. We got the moon wanting to come and play, the crescent moon hanging out with Venus on the 9th, looking lovely. Red Antares, the Antares, the reddish star in Scorpius, lining up with Venus and the moon on the 9th, but then lining up in in general with Venus and hanging out near it for the next week or two. And the moon then gets up to hang out with uh, Jupiter and Saturn around the 14th. So much to see. That's wonderful. Thank you. It's good stuff. Some interesting things as well in this week in space history. 1959, Luna 3 became the first spacecraft to take pictures and return them. Pictures of the far side of the moon. Our first mediocre views, uh, but the first views ever of the far side of the moon. Quite a milestone when you think how long humans have been looking up at that single side of the moon, that one hemisphere, and uh, it took that long. Uh, You know, nice work the Soviets did way back then. Indeed, and they also did in 1964... With Voskhod 1, which I'll come back to in just a moment. Voskhod 1's mission was this week in 1964, which leads us to random space fact. (laughs) Spasiba. (laughs) Pajalsta. Voskhod 1 in 1964 was the first space mission with more than one person aboard. Hooray! There were three, rather than the two as originally designed for, apparently due to political pressure. So they also had the distinction of becoming the first to fly without spacesuits because there wasn't room for them. Gosh. I I don't even want to think about this. I mean, all I have to do is look at how they cram 
three people into a Soyuz now and think, what? It was even tighter than that? Oh, my. (laughs) Yeah. There's just a lot of intriguing things with Oscod 1 that we will come back to even more in just a few moments. But first, let's go to the previous trivia question. I asked you the somewhat challenging question, what currently functioning Mars orbiter has the longest orbital period? How'd we do, Matt? You know what was surprising this time is how many people got it wrong, at least by the determination that I believe you made. Uh, I would say half of the uh, entries you know, said Mars Express or the uh, Emirates Mars mission Hope. Uh, even some that uh, went to like Maven and things like that, which I guess has a fairly eccentric orbit. Here's the answer we got from Martin Hajoski, mom. The Mars Orbiter Mission from India, also known as Mangalayan, with an orbital period of 72 hours, 51 minutes, and 51 seconds. That is correct. It is uh, significantly longer than uh, everyone else, although... The HOPE mission is also in the really long category of 55 hours, but everyone else is pretty much under, say, eight hours. I would say HOPE definitely came in second, and a lot of people did note that also long orbital period. But yeah, couldn't touch uh, couldn't touch mom. Congratulations, Martin. <laughs> and it, it has been, <laughs> I know how that sounds. Wait, there's more. It has been almost four and a half years since Martin, who regularly enters the competition, uh, has won the contest by my records. So again, congratulations. And we are going to send you, Martin, a Planetary Society kick asteroid rubber asteroid. We're going to send it to Texas. Why not? That's where he lives. Put this <laughs> in. <laughs> this is cute. He says, uh, you know, heads much farther away from Mars each time around, allowing it in a sense, to watch over the other seven functioning Martian orbiters, exactly what you might expect mom to do. (laughs) I never thought of it that way. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. We are ready to move on, and this is going to be something special in more than one way. (laughs) From my side of special, here's your question. What major political event in the USSR happened during the only 24-hour-long Voskhod 1 mission. Major political event in the Soviet Union occurred during Voskhod 1 mission while it was in space. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. You said this was in 1964? Yes, 1964. All right, everybody. Here's the other special thing about this contest. You have no excuses because I'm going to be going on vacation, and therefore we have to. What? Yes, I've earned it. <laughs> we All right, we have to mess with the contest somewhat. So you're going to have not one, not two, but three weeks to respond to this one. You have until Wednesday, October 27, at 8 a.m. Pacific time, to get us the answer to this one and win yourself. What else? A beautiful, safe and sane rubber asteroid. (laughs) Excellent. We'll have a lovely vacation, Matt, when that happens. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to it. It's it's been a long time since I've been away for, this will be just short of two weeks, and uh, there's a lot of stuff to get ready before then, but boy, is it going to be fun. 
All right, make sure you let me know what I need to pack. <laughs> uh, wait a minute. Hey, honey. Oh, no, I'll tell her later. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> She'll be so happy. <laughs> Say goodnight, Bruce. All right, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky, and think about what you'd pack if you went on vacation with Matt Kaplan. Thank you, and good night. Hey, honey, put a couple of extra cans of coffee in there. All right, anyway, he's Bruce Betts, the uh, chief scientist for the Planetary Society, who joins us every week here for What's Up. Cans? Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members who don't mind revolving around any world. Mark Hilverda and Jason Davis are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. At Astro. <laughs>